0: Okay, today my guest is Professor Stephanie Decker. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with her. In the next 30 minutes or so, you'll talk about Stephanie as a person, Professor Decker is a talk leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip me for accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Decker is the co-vice chair for research and publications at the British Academy of Management and Council Member. She is also the co-editor-in-chief for business history and sits on the editorial boards of organization studies, accounting history, and GIPs. Uh, Stephanie's work makes the connection between social sciences and history, specifically organization studies, strategy, and international business. She is involved with the International Scientific Advisory Board for the Austrian Society of Business History and the Scientific Advisory Board for the Bohum Series in Business and Industrial History at Bill Publishing. Thank you, Stephanie, for joining us.
1: Thank you for the invitation. That's very kind. Uh,
0: Stephanie, uh, what did you want to become when you were a child?
1: Sorry, what was that? What I wanted to become when I was...
0: As a child. <laughs>
1: I was just thinking back because I, I saw obviously, these are sort of the questions you ask in these interviews. And one thing that um that I remembered was that, um I always really like books and reading, and I always had the sort of idea of, yeah, I would like to do something when I'm grown up or I can do all of these things. So I think when I was probably a young teenager, I found one of these books on the shelves that had um. A series of really curious symbols and I went on a, a little research project of my own this was before the internet to sort of find out what these symbols meant and I found it really revealing then you know when you have this moment and you figure out what it is and why it's there I mean it was just really something to you know illustrate a book but still they, they were very curious <laughs> and um, I ended up sort of writing it up for myself and thought oh wouldn't that be great if there was a job like this um, but I wasn't from an academic family, so I had no idea that there are actually jobs where you you know, find something curious and then you spend a long time trying to find out everything about it and then you write it up. Um, but I think as a kid, I kind of thought at some point that would be a great job, but I don't think that exists. <laughs> and um, so I think it took me many, many years to figure out that that job actually did exist and I think now I have it. So that, that's quite good.
0: Uh, actually, the business model is quite interesting. You come up with a question and you answer your own question, and then someone pays you. So this is basically what the field is.
1: <laughs> it is. I mean, i, I got to say, as uh, when I was 13, I definitely wasn't paid, and nobody paid any interest, which is probably also a little bit what the experience of <laughs> academics is like. But, you know, you, you find your group of people who are as curious as you and interested.
0: And where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Germany, uh, very uh, west of the country, right on the Dutch border. So... Um, uh, outside Dusseldorf, but quite a small town. So,
0: yeah. Okay. And how did you come to academia uh, uh, The uh, from uh, Germany? How did you move to England?
1: Um, I mean, I was, like I said, I was fairly bookish. So I was pretty good at school. I like math. So I did my A-levels. They were very good. So I, I was at a school where lots of people then decided to to go to study, and um i wanted to study because i had this idea i wanted to become a journalist initially and the normal path was to study um and that's what i did and while i was at university i realized that maybe i would find journalism actually a little bit boring maybe i wanted to do something else and there was opportunities to do um a, a year abroad and that was something i knew i definitely wanted to do so i ended up um doing a master's at the university of liverpool And that was really eye opening for me because um, essentially I learned a lot about uh, types of international history that maybe in Germany weren't taught so much. And I was particularly interested, um, say, in the history of empire, the history of of how different cultures interacted and how that shaped the present day world. And I think that was something at the time you could uh, study a lot better in the UK. And so I kind of got stuck there, was offered a PhD. And one of my supervisors from the beginning was in the management school teaching international business. So while I did a PhD in history, I was from the beginning between sort of business and management schools and history departments. And everything I did was very contemporary and very about, very much sort of focused about how do we end up where we are with this world that we're in.
0: Perfect. Now it makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Uh, glad. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting about you?
1: God. Um, I, I quite like drawing and art museums. I'm quite sort of artistic. So um, that really has very little space on an academic CV. But on the other hand, I think that's that's okay because I think that's sort of a hobby. That's something I like doing. So i probably do it a little bit less now. But then there's... Um, you know, social media and all of these things, you can design PowerPoints. I tend to uh, probably spend a little bit too long on my PowerPoints because I quite like the design aspects that you can do digitally, whether it's social media or presentations. And I think this comes from artistic interest, let's put it that way.
0: And if you could do it all over again, uh, what would be the second best career path for you?
1: Good question. I don't know if I could do it all again I would probably even try to travel more and to maybe even go abroad earlier and to more areas of the world so I think at the end everybody sort of you have limited energy and I also find that places where I've lived I've really liked it there so I really like being somewhere for a longer period of time but on the other hand it's also nice to find out new things and you know the world's still a really big place so I sometimes think Maybe even more time internationally would be great.
0: (laughs) So are you now settled in Birmingham? Uh, Are are you thinking of moving? Can you move for a year, two years?
1: Um, I guess I could, but I would also say it's become a little bit more difficult. I've got, um, I'd say, older parents. They're still in Germany, so I I do kind of travel all the time. And the advantage of being in Britain versus, say, the U.S. is um, it is just a very short short hop if you're in Europe. And I always kind of enjoyed that about Europe, that sort of diversity mm-hmm. that you have in a relatively short distance. But then obviously I've, I've always been interested, say, in um, West Africa, I've been to Rwanda and all of these things have not been possible um, since the pandemic. So I've sort of done a lot of research in West Africa just before the pandemic. I was fortunate enough to go to Rwanda, which is East Africa. Um, previously to South Africa. And it's just been fascinating to go to places that are just very different from what I grew up with. And I've always found that extremely satisfying. But I guess the older you get, the more responsibilities you have. So for me, these are increasingly shorter trips, (laughs) I'd say. (laughs)
0: That's right. So regrets, have you got any regrets in life?
1: I don't think that many, no. I mean, I kind of think, there's always more you could have done but on the other hand i also find that uh sometimes doing the things that you're doing properly is also worthwhile so i'm not sure whether they're regrets couldn't say that i have anything that's really burning on my soul i mean there's always things where i think i could have done that could have done that but at the end of the day i think No, I can't really think of anything that I would say. Like, it's a regret. Regret's like a big word. What can
0: I say? You're blessed. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe just
1: blessed with a poor memory. That might also.
0: (laughs) Well, you're a historian. So, of course, it comes with the territory. What are you most proud of?
1: I don't know what I'm most proud of. I guess the fact that um, I I lead a very good life with good friends. a big partner if we have a dog our life is is good and i think that people underestimate it, it takes it takes a lot of investment to live a good life i think
0: and last a personal question yeah. what are you most passionate about
1: well it depends whether it's my private life or my professional life in my private life i think i'm really passionate about you know things like cooking and eating well um, <laughs> to be perfectly honest In my professional life, it's really doing the kind of work that I find interesting, that sort of, you know, I think you always have to have a bit of a balance between the things you have to do in work and the things you really want to do. And getting that balance right, I think that's important. And that means you always have to do some things you actually feel passionate about and that you think are meaningful and you think you've done well.
0: Mm.
1: And um, we never really have as much time for that as we would like. So it's really that balance.
0: Do you work? Do you write every day?
1: I mean, I write something. Sometimes that's more like emails. You know, it's not like I manage Mm -hmm. to write something academic every day. But I mean, I think it would be a rare week when I don't write something academically. And I also think it's not always the question of are you writing it or are you thinking about it? Because I think we sometimes underestimate how important it is to do all that thinking before you actually write. And I think, you know, sometimes that can be months or even years where you think about things. The problem is then um, if you don't write it down somewhere, you tend to forget. But I think that sort of thinking and processing that that happens before the writing is sort of part of it.
0: So let's talk about some research. Um, How do you explain your research and the importance of your research to people who don't read scholarly uh, articles uh say you're stranded in a small village locals don't know anything about it they are curious How you you my mother. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah I'm, i mean i guess um i often have to explain to say people at home what what it is that i'm doing um and i, I used to get this question of what, what is it exactly that you're doing because i think family <laughs> i'm from being an academic is a very diffuse thing They're like you teach um So I I try to explain to people that I'm interested in, I guess, a little bit what what we talked about at the beginning and, and why the world looks the way it does, particularly in terms of, you know, the international economy, businesses, how do they take decisions? Why are they in the places that there are? Why do we see certain structures, certain assumptions about decision making? So I guess that's that's what I find interesting. And I guess when people are not clear on on what you do as an academic, I try to explain that it goes beyond teaching and that we actually research questions that are important. And that could be, um, you know, the history of something that we think is fairly recent, but actually it turns out it might be decades old or even hundreds of years old. And that gives us a different perspective on whether it's a problem and how easily we can address it. So obviously I've done research on Africa and I think there's often this perception of, oh, well, if, if you know, we could just sort it out if we did X, Y, Z. And the reality is, well, people had these ideas for a long time. And a lot of the time you come with great solutions and they just don't work. And there's, there's a whole history of certain things not working in specific settings with certain organizations. And I think trying to uncover why that is that things, appear very simple, but are really far more complex over time. I think that's sort of um, conceptually what I find quite interesting.
0: Thank you. <clears throat> uh, some of the omitted variables, things that we have neglected over time in IB research.
1: I think IB has um, done some pretty amazing work, but because it looks at things in such a large scale, I think sometimes the sort of qualitative work is not been as present in IB. And I know there's there's obviously a big discussion around that um and i think qualitative work can be really meaningful because you can look at a situation and not necessarily think is this representative of other situations like this but consider um, an organization or a country as revealing in different ways as showing us dynamics or issues that you can only see if you really do a deep dive into a specific setting and i think that's really sort of where qualitative research can benefit international business studies but I also think that historical research is sort of part of that particular story. So, international business, in particular, is is as a field, but also as what we study, it's so much shaped by uh, phenomena like colonialism. Like, like, how did the world economy? How was this actually created? How do we have long-standing links between certain continents? And what has happened since then? How have businesses sort of evolved over time and have actually changed the way they're engaged with certain regions? And I think that's, that, that's really important. And I think that could help us understand better, for example, the role of expatriates in certain firms. You know, we think it's, it's a very common thing for an organization to send expatriates out. But there's a really long history of firms only trusting people from their own ethnic and social group to manage their interests abroad. And how do you actually learn and include people from other areas in the world and management structures and make them part of your organization is actually a really sort of slow process. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's a historical process, but you can still see the legacies in the present day. If you think about the fact that in some countries you still have expatriates, um, sometimes you only have them in specific positions, they're real legacies to do with that. And you may not see um, other people from other countries being expatriates quite so often because they may have legacies of, um, or educational systems. So there's a much smaller group of people really in a position to have all these assets that you need to become an international manager. And these are things that are really historically embedded and and they shape our perception of a place, of an organization and and how we interact with them in businesses in organization and, and in politics. And I think that's really, that's something you can only understand if you take the sort of sometimes more fine-grained but also more historical view at issues and i think that gives us a different perspective on a lot of our theories and our knowledge
0: stephanie uh, yes uh i agree and when you were talking about how you do research uh, that was a period of say incubation uh, in your mind something was going on in your mind for you to sit and write about it so how about this uh, ideal curiosity of the minds? Um, how well does creativity uh, factor in? How do you come up with creative ideas? Where, where is the next paper idea coming uh, coming from? How is the process working for you?
1: Okay. Um, I think there's, there's two things. I think two things sort of get me started on a new project or a new paper. One might be sort of driven by um, Empirics. So I might um, have found something that is really startling and new and unusual. So um, a colleague recently approached me, um, having found some fantastic files in an archive in the U.S. uh, about a kind of company that we thought the earliest companies of this type came from the 1990s and they were actually from the 1960s. So there were a kind of company that we didn't know existed that early. And then it turned out it was led by two women in 1950s, 1960s, United States, when, you know, women business leaders were incredibly rare. Mm. And they were very influential. They were very um, innovative. And in some ways, they really created a new type of service, a new type of industry in the US that um, is now quite international, but we didn't know it existed that early. But nobody remembers them. I mean, my co-author only found the files purely by accident in a major business archive in the US. And that also raised issues for us why certain people get forgotten. You know, we have these pioneers out there in the world and they're celebrated, but not all pioneers are remembered. And, and what are the dynamics between, you know, us remembering or choosing to forget the achievements of certain people? So that was a really interesting project because it's um, it was a little bit away from what I usually do. I don't normally look at mid-century United States. Um, but it's interesting because you can see all these companies that have walked in the footsteps of these two women who are, you know, you go Sweden, Germany, US, you have these companies everywhere, but, uh, nobody is sort of aware of, of the pioneers. So that's sort of when you have a project where you find something, it is absolutely fascinating. You start digging in and you begin to realize that conceptually you can see lots of things that you find interesting. Hmm. I think the other avenue is obviously when you start with the concepts, Um, so a lot of the work I've done is around um, historical research in, say, um, strategy and organization studies, international business, so I sort of know that um, in terms of the research I have done and I want to do further, it's really around taking these ideas and working them through developing something around a specific concept to, to illustrate, for example, how important it is to understand, say, the historical evolution of something or to use a specific setting to understand how very long running certain issues are. I think we're sometimes extremely short-termist and we don't understand that, you know, when we look at global challenges particularly, global challenges are global challenges because they're decades old. And if we start to develop solutions that have a time horizon of five years, that's not addressing a global challenge in any meaningful way. So looking at a global challenge, how it has evolved over time, but also seeing the various attempts to solve a global challenge, say over decades, and see how that challenge has evolved and changed its colors, changed its shape, but retained still, you know, a continuity with the original challenge. And you realize so many clever people and organizations have been working on a global challenge. And it's it's not... It's not impervious, but it's also not easily solved. and I think that's the sort of understanding about just how long run some of our solutions need to be for us to do any meaningful intellectually challenging, theoretically rigorous research.
0: That's I
1: mm-hmm. think conceptually really what, what I'd like to do next.
0: Well you start I mean you, you did uh, start on a different answer or a different question about the evolution of the fields. Um, you mentioned global challenges that we are more involved in, and maybe we will be more involved in bigger questions in IV. It will be more interdisciplinary, maybe. Hopefully, everyone is like a lip service now. Everyone talks about it. So, what's next? What's next going to be in the uh, in the evolution of IV, uh, with especially with these global challenges?
1: I don't know. I think. Um... IB maybe in many ways has looked at um, some broad theoretical challenges and some very practical questions in the past. But I think this issue of multidisciplinarity and uh, transdisciplinarity isn't going to go away. So I think for IB, there'll be a real question um, how separate the field can meaningfully be, given that so many other areas look at problems in a very international way as well. And I think IB brings in ideas around distance, uh, around complexity that are very valuable. And I think for IB as a field, it's important. I think that these contributions are seen and and form part of these bigger debates. But um, yeah, I think the trend is really going towards lots of different fields doing very interdisciplinary, very large scale, very complex topics, themes, theoretical approaches. I think how IB gets a place within those debates is, is the next big challenge.
0: A word that comes to mind when I'm listening to you uh, that the fields and research has to be definitive. And the example that you gave uh, about um, the new re- research area from 1950s, 1960s, uh, to a woman in America, uh, United States uh, doing some uh, industry uh, entry. Um, I forgot who said it, uh, but it was about uh, discovering uh, America. And Mm -hmm. they they said, you know, everyone discovered America a couple of times before Christopher Columbus, but uh, no one needed to do it after Christopher Columbus. So some people are simply definitive. They they basically define the field. They define the the, the thrust uh, in the, uh, in the area um, about uh, how how does history, because you did talk about also colonialism. I mean, you did go back way long, uh, way, way, way behind. Um, how is this going to be taking shape, especially with these uh, new fashionable ideas, uh, SDGs and social engineering, um, social fabrication, nation building, these are the new things that is going on. Uh, How is it going to be impacting our fields for our research going forward?
1: I don't know. And I guess these are all different issues that are likely have different types of impact on IB, Um, because I think they're not necessarily all having the same impact. And I think whether they have impact or not also depends on people in the field of how interested they are in those questions and whether they want to engage with them. I mean, I don't think IB scholars or the field itself is sort of, you know, they're not passive recipients that they will take a look. They will decide which are the areas they feel they can best engage with and contribute to. So I think that's quite an active process. I mean, global challenges at this point is highly unlikely that any of us will be untouched by them simply because they will likely shape our lives for the next few decades. Um, and we are increasingly becoming aware that we live on a very global planet with limited resources and that to some extent, we might all need to contribute to a better understanding and a better way of, of managing ourselves in the world, I guess, at a basic level.
0: Okay. okay. About mentoring, Uh, what are the top three big mistakes that you see junior faculty or PhD students usually make? The things that you would say, do this, don't do that. Mm,
1: I don't know. I guess the main mistake I see with junior faculty is maybe that they probably listen a little bit too much. Um, (laughs) I think there's a lot of negativity out there. And I think a lot of that is understandable and like any other academic i like a good moan but i also think sometimes junior faculty can take some of that talk very much to heart and i think it can make people feel really down about their opportunities and you know in in some fields that's that's realistic and in other fields not so much i mean i would say in business and management schools obviously i'm based in the UK. job opportunities remain pretty good pressures are many you know and the pressures pressure to have impact that means you know real world impact you know dealing with things like the SDGs things like that we have to teach we have to do research and uh, get published in top journals so um, as a career there are lots of pressures but I think a lot of the junior faculty get sometimes very wound up And I think the main message is really you don't have to do everything all the time and straight away at the beginning. I mean, you you do things over time. So I do often see, I think, junior faculty getting a bit overwhelmed. And then I think the other thing is really the mistake. I mean, there's this great line, um, advice never hurts the giver. I mean, who are you listening to? I think people, particularly at the start of their career, sometimes need to be very selective in terms of, you know, who are they listening to and B what do they think are the right things to focus on, which can be really hard. I completely appreciate that. But I think it's very easy to just, you know, run after everything and listen to everything. And from what I see, there's maybe just too much noise out there and it tends to get very stressful for junior faculty. That's my general.
0: Is there something that you wish you had known, uh, early on in your career, which would save you so much uh, pain and agony?
1: Well, wow. quite a few things, I guess. I think uh, in my case, I felt there was a, I mean, and this is what I said, is I felt there was a lot of bad advice around. I also felt there were a lot of people, um, this might be a particular UK phenomenon, but um, uh, we all have to do teacher training when we start. And we also have sort of people in the schools where I sometimes feel... Other people who are involved in the teacher training or people in the schools, they may want to use the opportunity of sort of pushing junior people to do things which are really their projects and and their political agendas. And you know, a lot of these might not be the best avenue for junior people to focus their energies. They might have to be far more strategic, maybe a little bit more cynic, hmm. um, uh, cynical, cynical. And I often see people, I think, trying to push their own agendas in particularly uh, with a focus on, on junior staff, trying to make them fight their battles. And I feel that's that's maybe a mistake I made. And uh, you learn after a while, you know, you're part of a larger system and you kind of need to navigate around. Whereas I think at the beginning, there were a lot of people who gave you this this general sense. You could change these things. You could do all these innovative things in the classroom and in terms of publishing and then you realize actually there are sort of rules of the game and you spend a lot of energy fighting things that you on your own will never be able to shift and I sometimes feel there's some people around that put you up to that that's certainly our felt as, as junior staff. <laughs> I, I always I'd always advise any of my PhD students in ECR to just be strategic think of what you can do don't pick fights you don't need to fight
0: that's good advice actually. Uh, last question What's the question that I should have asked you about heavens? Sorry, come again. What's the question I should have asked you about heavens? Mm. Anything that I have left out? I don't
1: know. I mean, I think, um, you, you asked about the don't do's. I think the do's are maybe more important. I mean, don't do's are clearly part of it, but I think, um, You know, I think the advice or, you know, the the things, I guess, that make people passionate, that sort of I kind of think that's sort of the important story, because people often fall into this trap with saying very negative things around maybe their job or what's happening with the world. And I actually think um, there's also some some really good things that I think we can do as academics. So I think that's sort of the the, the sort of why are academics doing what they're doing uh, when there's obviously a lot of frustrating stuff around as we all know. But you know, on the whole, I think it's not the worst career. And I think we all get opportunities to follow our passions and be very independent and autonomous in what we do. And yeah, I kind of think that's always an important thing to ask people, particularly when you get into um, you know, some of these conversations where people can become quite negative. And I think, well, the reality is we all could have a different job. We're all still choosing to be here. And that has to do with the fact that I think still in some ways a great career, There are obviously downsides, but we're able to sort of follow our passions and talk to intelligent people. I think that's a benefit of the job. Everybody is pretty bright and pretty interested and can give you a good argument. I I don't think that's something, you know, you have in life in any career or, you know, it's not automatic. I think we're very fortunate in that.
0: Stephanie, thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed it a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you. Thank you.